Thank you for listening to Understanding Christianity. I'm your host, Pastor Sean Cole. I'm the lead pastor of Emanuel Baptist Church in Sterling, Colorado. I also serve as an adjunct professor at Colorado Christian University. Thank you for listening to the podcast. Uh, This past week, we did the second installment of the Calvinism debate, and we focused on unconditional election. This was moderated by Owen Pond. He's a missionary in Bulgaria. He hosts the Christus Victor Network. He also has the Ask a Millennium podcast. Uh, It is on his podcast and his website that this is originally um, posted, but we've got permission to play it here on Understanding Christianity. It is a two-hour debate, and so I've broken it up into the two hours, and so this is section one. We had a discussion between myself and Tyler Vela. He is my partner in crime. We were um, affirming unconditional election, and we were debating against Leighton Flowers at Soteriology 101 and Braxton Hunter, who is a seminary professor of Trinity College of the Bible in Indiana. And so what we're going to do is just listen to this, and I want to just give a few prefatory or preface remarks about the debate. The second hour was probably a little bit more engaging than the first hour, but I I do want you to listen to both. And the one thing that I want you to really pay, pay close attention to is... Uh, the the difference between how each group approaches Scripture, how each um, of the two sides presented an aff- affirmation of the position, and really just to to, to see the distinguishing differences between uh, the views of unconditional election versus corporate election. So I hope you enjoy. This is hour one of the Calvinism debate on unconditional election. Welcome back to the Christus Victor Network's Calvinism Debate. We are on the U in TULIP. Last time we did the T, total depravity. This time we'll be talking about election. Here to represent the position of corporate election are Leighton Flowers and Braxton Hunter. Leighton, why don't you tell us a little bit about who you are and where we can find you online? Sure. I am the uh, the Director of Youth Evangelism for the Baptist General Convention of Texas and Adjunct Professor of Theology and also um, a teaching pastor at First Baptist Church of Richardson. Um, I guess pertaining to this particular subject, you could find information about me at soteriology101.com. Perfect. Braxton? Yeah, I'm the president of Trinity College of the Bible and Theological Seminary in Newburgh, Indiana, and I teach apologetics and evangelism there. You can find me at braxtonhunter.com. And to defend the traditional Calvinist doctrine of unconditional election, we have Sean Cole and Tyler Vela. Sean, who are you and where can we find you? Yeah, I'm Sean Cole. I'm the lead pastor of Emmanuel Baptist Church in Sterling, Colorado. I also serve as an adjunct professor of a lot of different subjects at Colorado Christian University. And you can find me at Understanding Christianity or at seancole.net. Tyler? Hi, I am uh, not a pastor or a professor like any of the gentlemen here. I am the uh, the token lay person. Uh, but you can find me at the Freed Thinker Podcast. Um, the webpage is freedthinkerpodcast.blogspot.com uh, or uh, visit the Freed Thinker Facebook page um, for the group. And my name is Owen Pawn. I will be hosting the debate. I am a missionary in Bulgaria. You can find some of the podcasts that I host on christusvictornetwork.com. 
In fact, this is one of a series of debates on Calvinism. If you go to chrisvictornetwork.com, you can find the Calvinism debate, and it will have all of them as they come out. So to give you a little bit about the format, first we'll hear about the position of corporate election. They will have 15 minutes to present their case, and then the Calvinist side will have 15 minutes to cross-examine them, after which the Calvinists will have 15 minutes to present their doctrine, and then the other side will cross-examine them for 15 minutes. Up until that point, it's a pretty standard debate for an hour. The second hour, we will shift into more of a conversational mode where we'll really be able to interact and hopefully work down into some of the points of contention when it comes to election. So with that, corporate election has the chance to present first. Leighton, you have the floor. Thanks, guys. First of all, when we talk about unconditional election from the Calvinistic perspective, typically you're talking about predestination. As John Calvin even says, quote, some are predestined to salvation, others to damnation. Or, quote, all are not created on equal terms, but some are predestined to eternal life, others to eternal damnation. So when someone hears the term election, most often they think of the concept of being irresistibly chosen, certain individuals being effectually um, chosen before the foundation of the world. And, and, and I'll, I'll admit that Calvinists have done a really good job convincing at least, I know, this generation that that's what election typically means, to the point even that even non-Calvinists will say things like, well, I don't believe in that predestination stuff, or I don't believe in that election stuff. Well, if you believe the Bible, you have to believe in predestination and election. So it's not a, about rejecting the concept of predestination and an election. It's about understanding the biblical doctrine rightly. And when we talk about within our modern culture, there tends to be an oversimplification of certain kinds of doctrines and understandings of it. Um, and when many talk about of election as only God having one particular choice of individuals who he's going to effectually save, it really oversimplifies the biblical doctrine of biblical election. The truth is that God has made many choices in bringing about his redemptive plan. And I'd like to illustrate that by looking at at least three very distinct choices of God in the parable of the wedding banquet taught by Jesus in Matthew 22. This is a parable that Jesus concludes with the often quoted statement, many are called, but few are chosen. And I know most of you are very aware already of this parable. It's about a king whose son is getting married and he gathers some of his servants together from his own kingdom to pass out invitations to the wedding. This is representative of choice number one. God picks individuals from the nation he has chosen to carry his message. Now, remember, we don't believe God determines everything as traditionalists, but we do believe that God does determine some things. And God has clearly determined for his word to be delivered through Israel. This choice is what the first century church often thought about when they heard the word election or the term elect. This is why the Jewish people were nicknamed the elect of God. That is choice number one, God's choice of this nation and the individuals from that nation to carry about his purpose. Now, divine election choice, or I should say choice or election number two here, the choice in this parable is the king chooses to send his invitation to his own people first. The servants are sent to his own countrymen, and we know what happens. They torture and kill many of those servants. 
which may provoke someone to ask the very question, well, has God's word failed then? If his own people are rejecting the word, then it must have failed. This is the exact question that Paul asked in Romans 9, verse 6, for example. But God's plan doesn't stop there. The king chooses to send the message to those outside his kingdom, to the highways and to the byways, to the good and the bad alike. You could call that maybe unconditional. It's not conditioned on their morality, for example. Just as the choice of the nation itself wasn't conditioned upon how great the nation was or the servants. They weren't chosen based upon how good they were or one servant was better than some other person within the kingdom that he could have equally have chosen. He has chosen to send this invitation to whosoever will come because the king is free to show mercy to whoever he wants to. He can invite whoever he wants to. Many are called. That's what this part of the parable is all about, that many are called. Whosoever will may come. God chooses to invite first the Jew and then the Gentile, just as we know that the, that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation, as Romans 1.16 says, which first goes to the Jew and then the Gentile. They can't come to the banquet unless they've been invited to the banquet, as Paul indicates in Romans 10.14 when he says, how will they believe in one whom they have not heard? It's impossible to believe in somebody you haven't heard. It's impossible to attend a party you don't know that exists. You have to be invited to it. So he sends the invitations in order to enable, not effectually cause, but to enable all to come. That is choice number one, the choice of the nation and the individuals within that nation to carry God's plan and purpose to the world. Choice number two, the choice to take the message to the nation of Israel first and then to the highways and the byways to whosoever will come. Both of those have unconditional aspects, as we just noted. Both of them are indicating that they're not being chosen because they're great or powerful or more moral, anything of that nature. But we haven't even got to election yet. We've only talked about the calling of this parable. We haven't got to the third choice in God's plan for redemption. Only those clothed in the right wedding garments were chosen by the king to enter into the wedding banquet. Those not properly clothed, they're cast out. Now, that choice is clearly conditional. If you walk up to a door of a restaurant and it says, no shoes, no shirt, no service, it's conditioned. You have to be dressed to enter into that, to, to get served in that restaurant. You're not going to get in. Well, the same is true with this wedding banquet. If you come and you're not properly clothed in the right garments, you're not getting in. It's conditioned. You must be clothed in the righteousness of Christ through faith. You cannot get into the banquet unless you've been clothed. And these are the ones who he says are elect. Many are invited, many are called unconditionally, but few are elect, chosen. And the few who are elect or chosen are ones who are meeting the condition of being clothed in the righteousness of Christ. They cannot enter in absent of being clothed in the righteousness of Christ. They are chosen based upon whether they are clothed in Christ. They have to be in him. See, it's my contention that Calvinists have confounded or conflated these three very distinct divine choices by almost treating them almost as if they're all one and the same choice. That's why you, have, you often hear Calvinists compare our individual salvation to Paul's calling, for example. And they or they they look to John fifteen sixteen which says you did not choose me but I chose you and they use those as examples of how God also 
chooses those who will believe the message. And it's, it's simply conflating God's choices, number one and two, with ultimately God's choice to elect whom he wants to save, which is those who, are, who humble themselves, who believe in Christ, and call upon his name. I yield the rest of my time to uh, Dr. Hunter. All right. Um, I would just add to that, the position of the Calvinists is that election is individual. Our position is that election is corporate. Despite there being a number of passages that could be used to support this, let's take a look at Ephesians 1. What Ephesians chapter 1 indicates is that it is predestined that those who are in Christ will receive an inheritance and be adopted into the family of God. What it does not say is that God determines specific individuals to be in Christ. It is referring to a group, the corporate body of Christ. Notice how many times the word we or us are mentioned, 21 times in the first 23 verses. Then notice how many times in him, meaning Jesus, is mentioned, 10 times in this passage. In other words, we, the church, as a corporate group, are predestined to receive an inheritance in him. If this is not enough, notice the similarity between Ephesians 1.4 and Ephesians 5.26 and 27. Ephesians 1.4 says, Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we, again, a plural group, would be holy and blameless before him in love. But Ephesians 5.26 and 27 clarifies this, says, So that he might sanctify her a corporate group, the church, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word um, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. So what was chosen to be holy and blameless before the foundation of the world? Individuals? No, a group, a corporate body, the church. The corporate body was chosen, again, what Ephesians chapter 1 indicates is that it is predestined that those who are in Christ will receive an inheritance and be adopted into the family of God. What it does not say is that God determines specific individuals to be in Christ. It is referring to a group, the corporate body of Christ. Peter echoes this corporate language in 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10 when he says, But you are a chosen race, a race is a lot of people, a royal priesthood, a group of people, a holy nation, a group of people, a people, a group of people, for God's own possession. Notice the plural corporate terminology used by both of these apostles. You're a chosen what? A group. Jesus gets all these things. You want to have all these things, an inheritance, an adoption, so forth? Well, be in Jesus. You'll have those things because he has those things. Uh, For the listener, a couple of analogies have been used in the past to illustrate this. Uh, One would be if the President of the United States invited a choir to come and sing at the White House. He invites the corporate group of the choir, but you make the decision whether or not you're going to be in that corporate group, the choir, or not. So he chose the corporate body, the choir, but you decide whether or not you're going to be in that. Uh, We might imagine, uh, to use Paul's uh, thinking about a body and members of that body, you might think about a liver in the body of a person who is condemned on death row. Uh, the liver is condemned because the man is condemned. But when the li- but let's imagine there's a liver transplant. The liver is taken out of that man's body and put into the body of the man who's about to be president of the United States or woman, God forbid, in this case. <laughs> and so um, uh, then that liver is now in the corporate body and is identified with the one who is going to be one of the most powerful men in the world. And so it gets all those benefits. Beyond this support for the corporate election view, what about the individual election to salvation that Calvinism says is unconditional? Is this what Scripture teaches? 
I don't think so. Jeremiah 18, 7 through 10 says, The instant I speak concerning a nation to pluck it up or to pull it down and to destroy it, if that nation against whom I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent of the disaster I thought to bring on it. Uh, in other words, I'm an interactive God. I'm a person. You're people. I want a relationship. If you decide not to do this thing, then I won't do what I said I would do. Proverbs 3.34, though he scoffs at the scoffer, he gives grace to the afflicted or the humble. 1 Peter 5.5 5, uh, quotes this. It says, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Psalm 18.25, uh, with the merciful, you will show yourself merciful. Matthew 5.7, blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Romans 10.9, if you confess with your mouth, Jesus the Lord, believe in your heart, God raised from the dead, you'll be saved. Um, in other words, if you do the right thing, you'll have mercy. If you do the wrong thing, you won't have mercy. If you do the right thing, you'll be saved. If you do the wrong thing, you won't be saved in terms of making a choice about this. And um, so, in the end, it seems that the nature of election is corporate and that whether or not you are in that priesthood, nation, people, or body depends on whether you humble yourself and believe. Okay, thank you very much for presenting the corporate election side. Sean and Tyler, you now have 15 minutes of cross-examination. Thank you, Owen. Um, let's focus on Ephesians 1, 4, and 5, which is the, the text that you guys um, use, and it's, it's a pretty popular verse relating to um, election. So you guys are arguing that, and I'm going to make sure, let me ask you this question. So one becomes in Christ, or one becomes part of the group by choosing to be in the group using one's free will. Is it, it, how do you, would you guys answer that? I'll, I'll answer that if that's okay. Yeah, as people who affirm libertarian free will, we would say it's a choice, and this really would just, in terms of how that mechanically works out, would go back, Sean, to uh, what we discussed last time with uh, hearing the gospel and believing the gospel. Okay. So God made the choice. So um, when you guys see the direct object of God's choosing being us, you do not see that as particular individuals being chosen for salvation, but more of a, a group being chosen. Let me jump in on that one because I think the audience of us is established in verse 1. To the saints in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus. So the in him is introduced in verse 1. And so the, the, those in him are the faithful in Christ Jesus. So if you were to take the word us in verse 4, he says, he chose us. Well, let's replace that with who us is. He chose the faithful in Christ Jesus for what? To be holy and blameless in his sight. That's sanctification. So what we're saying is that God has predestined the end of those who are in Christ Jesus. So he has predestined what will come of those in Christ. They will become sanctified, made holy and blameless, become and conformed to the image of Christ. They will become adopted, which is a future hope that we have, as we see in Romans 8.23, with the adoption of our bodies. When we take up residence with the Father in heaven, that's when our adoption is completed. And so we know it's going to happen, however, because all who are in him, the faithful in Christ Jesus, have been predestined to that end. He has predestined what will come of those who are in Adam. They will be destroyed. He has predestined what will come of those who are in Christ. They will be sanctified and glorified. So you view adoption as a totally a future issue, not in um, when one trusts Christ for salvation and you're justified then you're adopted into God's family. You don't see that as being what Paul's talking about. 
Well, adoption, like salvation itself, and even in the original, um, is more of a in the perfect tense. As I was saved, I am being saved, and I will be saved. And so it's never, it's not really like the English usually talks about it when somebody says, "Hey, when were you? When were you saved?" And we usually reflect back on when we were seven and we walked the aisle and said a prayer. The Greek didn't think that way. They talked about you were, you know, a past tense, a, pre, a perfect, you know, perfect tense is past, present, and, and future all in one. But the, the completion of our adoption, when what we're looking forward to, the hope that we're looking forward to, as Romans 8, 23 speaks of, is that he waits eagerly for the redemption, the adoption of, of, of our bodies. And so we, we look forward to that adoption, the redemption of our bodies in glorification. And we know that's going to happen because God's predestined that it will. Okay, so who, let me ask you another question. Who did God specifically choose before the foundation of the world? Um, I was gonna, I was gonna jump in and clarify the according to Romans eight twenty three, like Leighton was just saying, adoption may be synonymous with resurrection itself, our our ultimate uh, being resurrected. Um, in terms of who God chose before the foundation of the world, I think He chose a corporate group. He chose Christ. He chose uh, Christ is the elect ultimately, and then we can choose to be in Christ or not. But the text says Christ. Or God chose us. It doesn't say God chose Christ. It says God chose us. So you're seeing that us as a group, not including individuals unto salvation. Right. I see. Uh, it says He chose us in Christ. So I think the um, He chose Christ, and if you're in Christ, then you're chosen. I.e., you're one of the elect. So you're right. I see the us um, as the corporate body. Um, of course, uh, God knew who those would be, but that's a separate issue. Okay, so let's take a Pauline example from another text, and let's look at Second Thessalonians 2.13. I don't know if you guys want to have a chance to turn there, but Paul uses a different Greek word here to talk about choosing, and he also talks about being chosen for salvation before time began. Uh, how do you guys view that? Um, I'll, I'll jump in on this one. Um, I, I think this has a lot to do with uh, some of M.T. Wright's hits on this. Um, I know James Leo Garrett with Southwestern hits on this as well, that when you study first century Judaism and the, the collectivist culture, um, they, they spoke in corporate bodies. They, they spoke about us and them and you and us. And so everything was centered around us, the Jew, versus you, the Gentile. And you hear this kind of playoff, and even even Paul's battles in the first century are with the Judaizers who want to try to turn the Gentiles into Jews first. And it's this constant battle he's trying to, to always, um, you know, to, to fight against. And so in their mindset, when they hear us, they hear us, the group. We hear, as Westerners, a very individualized culture. We hear us, the individual. And so we tend to interpret things more of a hyper-individualized way of thinking. We think everything's about us, the individual, versus us, the group. And that, that was not the case there, especially when you have the, the corporate bodies being represented by federal heads being represented here. And so when we say he chose us in him, we're talking about the corporate group, and the question becomes, therefore, how does one come to be in him, which, as we've already referenced, verses 13 and 14 says, it's when you believe that you were marked in him. And so you're not marked in him before the foundation of the world. You're marked in him in time when you believe. 
I, I think uh, so. I, I have a I have a question because I'm well. I'm, I want to steer clear of the whole new perspectives on Paul, um, but so go into go into Romans, go into another Pauline passage. Ho- hopefully, I think this might clarify where Sean and I um, are still kind of unclear on how you can say a corporate group doesn't include specific individuals. Uh, so Romans twenty eight twenty nine, uh, you know, the golden chain. And we know that God causes all things to work together for the good of those who love God, right? Those are, that's that specific group. So, right. So, so part of the, part of my question here is going to have to do with um, understanding that, that Calvinism is a robust theology that includes uh, choice uh, that, that I think a lot of, uh, you know, Ar- Arminians um, uh, don't, don't quite get. So we're not going to deny that people act or choose or, or love God or work in accordance. It's just what they can do according to their nature. But he says, God works together for the good of those who love God to those who are called according to his purpose for those whom he foreknew, right? Foreknew that, that covenant love language. He also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son. So the, the question is, I mean, I mean, if you want to stick to this corporate language that, that, that the us and the them, that, that the calling only has to do with this corporate body of the church how is it that you understand Romans 28 29? Because it seems clear that he's talking about specifically those who love God and those specific individuals are the one he foreknew to be predestined to become conformed to the image of the Son. And at the same time, another, I'll, I'll just ask kind of a compound question. At the same time, is it the church who are conformed to the image of the Son or are we as individuals conformed to the image of the Son? Because that's really what we're being predestined to. Um, before Leighton, before you answer that, um, and Leighton should answer that because he's he's written a book on Romans nine and touches on Romans eight. Uh, before he does, let me go ahead and is it okay? I just want to say one quick thing about that passage in Second Thessalonians chapter thirteen. From the beginning, I think you said from the beginning of time or something. Um, from the beginning is what it says here in the New American Standard. Maybe you have a different translation. I think that's the right translation. Uh, God has chosen you from the beginning. I do think that's a corporate group, but uh, Paul uses the phrase from the beginning in several different places in Scripture. I won't read them, but I'll reference them. Acts 26, 5, who knew me from the beginning, meaning from the beginning of my ministry. Ephesians 3, 9, from the beginning of the world, which does mean from the beginning of the world. Philippians 4, 15, from the beginning of the gospel, that is from the beginning of my preaching of the gospel. So which of those is the correct interpretation is up for debate. I don't think it hurts our position either way if it did mean from the beginning of time because it could be the corporate group. But I think what Paul's saying here is uh, fr- from the very be- earliest parts of my ministry, the Thes- in the case of the Thessalonian church, um, you, you, were, you were a part of this corporate, corporate body. So I just want to make that clarifying statement, and then I'll kick it over to Leighton to answer well, that and, question. Well, and I'll go play off what you're saying there too, Braxton, is, you know, for example, Ephesians 3, 5, it says, which was not made known, um, he says, in reading this, then you may be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ. This is a mystery being just now revealed, as we know. Um, and it says, which is was not made known to men in other generations, as it is now being revealed by the Spirit to God's holy apostles and prophets. This mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel. And so, what you have here is in this time, in this you know, as the the, the apostle to the Gentiles, Paul is trying to convince all of his Jewish friends and the Gentiles that that God has chosen the Gentiles. That they had this mystery is just now being revealed that this group of people outside of Israel 
have been chosen. So it makes sense for Paul to write to predominantly um, Gentile crowds and audiences, reminding them, hey, you guys have been chosen from the beginning. This has been a part of God's plan from the beginning to engraft you, to make you a part of the covenant relationship with God. Again, the, when you read that from the individualized perspective, you think, well, it means God has chosen certain individual Jews and certain individual Gentiles to be effectually caused to believe versus the way the collectivist society would have read that to mean to say that God has chosen both the Jew, first the message goes to the Jew, and then to the Gentile. And so it's, again, just as we said in that first parable, it's a conflating of the different choices of God. Now, I don't know that we have time to get into Romans 8. I'm, I'm, I'm glad to. There are a couple of different interpretations and understandings of what for new prognosco refers to. Um, Brian Abishano is a, a, a leading scholar with the corporate view of election, and he holds to a little bit different perspective as I do. But he would he would definitely say and clarify for you, Tyler, that that whenever you talk about an individual um, or you know we, we, as a in, as ones who believe in corporate election, we we don't neglect the fact that individuals are chosen. For example, one has to be clothed in the righteousness of Christ. That's an individual coming to that banquet. And he's rejected and or let in individually. But we always talk about the individual as they are associated with either Christ or with Adam, the corporate heads. And so, yes, we in, we are involved very much with individuals here. There's individuals either in Adam or individuals in Christ. And the question is, how does one go from being in Adam, which we're all born in Adam, how does one go from being in him to being in Christ? And that is by grace through faith, that when you heard the message of truth, you are included in him. Now, again, I could go a little bit further into my understanding of prognosco as it relates even to, to Romans chapter 11 and that use of the word prognosco if we have time. But I, I want to yield because I've already been talking uh, too long here. Thank, thanks for that. And, and just, I mean, for, for people listening to, to remind also that, you know, if we don't touch on it completely, it's fine because we do have an hour to come back to these issues at the end. So um, my, my, my last follow-up question is for Braxton um, in his comparison between Ephesians 1 and Ephesians 5 um, and, and how, he would, how he would understand because Ephesians 5 is actually set in the context of the command to husbands and how we're to love our wives if if the comparison that's being drawn is that we are that 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 Christ that what what's foreknown is corporate, it's to all who um, would respond to uh, his 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 beckonings or uh, his his wooings. I mean, if, if it's not a, if it's not a specific person, but it's a group, what does that do to how husbands are to love our wives? I mean, is it that we're to love our wives? To, you know in and of themselves or are we to love all who respond to our advances because that that's uh, i mean the the entire analogy that's being uh, compared there is that husbands are to love our wives as Christ uh loved the church um but if you're going to say well loving the church is is to all who respond to to advances we advance to all um then how are you to, how is that analogy comparable to the husband well, it's not a problem with how I don't think how I'm using the analogy. It's it's how Paul's using the analogy. He's saying um, he's treating the church as a corporate group. Christ loved the church there. Christ is elsewhere the bride of Christ, and uh, the church is the bride of Christ. And so it's taking one aspect of how God treats the church and comparing it to how husbands ought to treat their lives, uh, their wives. Sorry. So, um, so I think it's just the way that Paul's using that analogy. So, do you think Paul would affirm? Um polyamorous marriage? 
<laughs> no, I don't think that. Uh, but see, we all, all of us Christians believe that uh, a multitude of people are one in the body of Christ uh, without falling into polyamory. Yeah, but remember, the Calvinists are going to say that, that it's made up of distinct individuals. It's not just a group with an indiscriminate call. Well, then it sounds like the Calvinist is the one who has the problem with polyamory. <laughs> we can come back to that in the last hour. We're out of time. Sounds sounds good to me. Okay, now the Calvinist side will have 15 minutes to present their case for unconditional election. Sean and Tyler, you're up. All right, so in um, in our last discussion, Sean and I argued not only for a position known as total depravity, uh, in which sin has corrupted every part of our human nature, but also for the position known as spiritual inability, by which we're unable to bring about our own salvation, which is Pelagianism, or even to will the conditions in which salvation can come, which is semi-Pelagian. Uh, what we're going to do today is to defend the position, as we've said, known as unconditional election, which follows logically, theologically, and we think biblically from the doctrines uh, stated above. Because if we're dead in our trespasses, we're, we're dry bones, we're Lazarus in the tomb, we, we stinketh. Uh, and if we agree with Paul in 1 Corinthians 2.12 that, quote, we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And then he continues in 2.14, quote, The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Then not only are we dead in our sins, but in our natural selves, before the regeneration of the Spirit unto new life, before being given a new uh, uh, heart of, of flesh, our new nature, we would be unable to even understand, let alone accept the gospel from uh, which is from the Spirit. So what hope is there for humanity? If all of us have sinned, and if sin means to be dead and unable to affect our own salvation to the point that we cannot even understand or accept the gospel without the regeneration of the Spirit, what first has to happen to us before we can be reconciled to God? Well, that is what we think the inspired authors of the biblical text seek to answer, and that is what we believe the system of theology, somewhat anachronistically called Calvinism, is. We will see these unfold, uh, the, the doctrines of Calvinism unfold over the course of the discussions, and we'll show how the Bible teaches them in such a way as to give us great assurance that God really will not allow one of his sheep to fall into the hands of a wolf. In fact, these doctrines are so inextricably linked and follow such tight logical structures that as we progress, I think we're going to see our opponents will want to object to one doctrine under debate by objecting to one of the doctrines entailed by it. But we have to examine only the doctrine in question to fully understand it. And so in this installment, we're going to start with defending that first step. And it really is the most logical first step that there could be. For us to be redeemed, God must choose us since we cannot choose him. This is the doctrine known as unconditional election. Now, unconditional does not mean without reason but rather without any condition found in the chosen object itself. That is, that there's nothing meritorious about us or our beliefs, our actions, our genealogy, our race, or anything else we do. We're not deserving, nor do we contribute anything to the process. We add nothing to the mix. We do not add water to make instant mashed potatoes. However, this does not mean that God does not have his own reasons and his own purposes, no matter how unknowable they may be to us. 
Louis Burkhoff in his Systematic Theology defines unconditional election as, quote, that eternal act of God whereby he, in his sovereign good pleasure and on account of no foreseen merit in them, chooses a certain number of men to be recipients of special grace and eternal salvation. More briefly, it may be stated to be God's eternal purpose to save some of the human race in and by Jesus Christ. Page 114. And really, what could be more eminently logical and consistent than that? That in order for us to be saved, God first chooses us. He did not just choose our species or your, your, your race or your tribe, but he chose a people for himself from every tongue, tribe, people, and nation. He selected individuals out of those nations. And we see this doctrine taught all throughout scripture. I'm going to run through a ton of verses really, really quickly to show this doctrine is ubiquitous in the Bible. There are some verses uh, on election in Jeremiah 1.5 that says, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. That's that covenant language that we were talking about. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. Well, when was Jeremiah chosen as a prophet? When was he appointed to the ministry to the nations? Well, it was in the womb, before he had acted, before he did anything. God chose him specifically. He didn't just choose prophets and then let Jeremiah choose to be one of them. God chose Jeremiah as a prophet, uh, as, uh, as appointed to a specific ministry to the nations before. Did that violate his free will? Does that mean Jeremiah didn't choose later? No, not at all. Not in the slightest. John 6.65, which we touched on last time. It is the spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. That's where Paul gets it, by the way. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. End quote. Notice here that Jesus is laying a foundation for what Paul will later say. The gospel is from the Spirit, and it is the Spirit that gives life. The flesh is, quote, no help at all, end quote. And he knew that Judas would betray him and the others would turn against him. And what does he say? Does he say that they have rejected the offer of the gospel that was offered to them? No, in fact, he says that the explanation is not that some have not believed and therefore turned down the offer, but effectively, that the surprising thing is that anyone does believe. And how is it that they believe? Because the Father has granted it to them. If you read any other version in the NIV, it's, it's, it's granted, not enabled. It's the, word, it's the verb didomai, which means to give, to grant, to put, show, uh, and, and so forth. It, it's, a, it's, it's an active verb uh, by God. It's, it's, it's completely passive on our part. Acts 13.48 says, And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Notice that it's not this that God appointed an, an unnumbered group to all, to all who would uh, accept his offer. Uh, those were the ones who were appointed. It's that those who were appointed, those were the ones who believed, those specific individuals. In, in the New American Standard Bible, it says, quote, And as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. The appointing ha was done before the believing was. It's, it's that those who were predestined to believe, believed. They acted. They chose. They still believed. Calvinism doesn't deny that we act in belief and that belief is the means by which salvation comes. The question is, can we believe in our natural state, without God's choosing us first. 
Uh, we talked about Romans eight twenty eight to thirty previously. Uh, the, this is this is the golden chain of salvation. Again, notice in verse thirty that if someone is in the first group, that that is the the first group that he foreknew. They are guaranteed to work all the way through to be glorified. There's, there's no question that those whom God foreknew, he predestined. Uh, and, and that goes all the way through. Those who predestined, he called. Those he called, he justifies. And those he justified, he glorified. If the Arminians are correct that God calls all people and desires all to accept the gospel and be saved, then that automatically, logically entails Universalism. If you follow the logic of Romans that all who are called are going to be glorified, and if Arminium is right that you're calling all people, that 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 is specifically a universal call. That's that's just the gospel presentation. That's not that's not an effectual call. Then universalism is entailed by that logic. We'll see that I'm sure when we get into the future discussion. We see Romans nine ten to sixteen, and not only so, but also when Rebecca had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac. Though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue. Right? We're talking about individuals, uh, uh, Jacob uh, uh, and, uh, and Isaac. Uh, uh, I'm sorry, Isaac and Esau. Uh, quote, not because of works, but because of him who calls. She was told the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Notice that Paul explicitly says that it's not based on human will or exertion. That is not based on the desires or our beliefs or our works, but rather it depends entirely on God's free choice from before we were even born, or even did anything good or bad. That's not corporate. Those were individual examples. We see Ephesians 1, 3 through 5. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ in every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundations of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to our purpose and will. When did the predestining occur? It's before the foundations of the world. And we saw this again. The corporate idea here just falls apart, right? It's, it's, we are not adopted as the church. The church is the, is, the com, is the combination of all the adopted sons and daughters. We are individually adopted. And when does that happen? Before the foundations of the world. Uh, Ephesians 2, 4 through 5, but God being rich in mercy because of his great love with, uh, with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ by grace you have been saved. When were we made alive? Well, it, while we, it was while we were still dead in our trespasses. We were still in our natural selves. It's when we were dead that Christ or that God made us alive. As we saw for Paul, this means that we were made alive in Christ before we were even able to understand and believe. Because when we were dead, when we were in our natural selves, we're not even able to understand and to accept the gospel, which is spiritually given. We're not able to believe and repent and have faith because when we were dead, we were still fallen. All right. Just checking time. Uh, what about some, some objections? Well, they, they might say that the scriptures tell us that we have to repent and have faith. 
We often hear this response from non-Calvinists, but it's, it's really misleading. For on Calvinism, as I've said, we agree 100% that Christians uh, repent and turn and believe and put their faith in Christ. We 100% agree that you do this based on your will. The question is, what is a necessary condition that had to be put in place before you could repent and believe? Remember, Paul explicitly tells us, and I've said this a couple times in 1 Corinthians 2, that the gospel is of the Spirit and that our natural selves are not able to do it. Indeed, we cannot accept uh, the gospel. This means before that we can understand, before we can believe, before we can repent, before we can trust, before we can do any of that, uh, God had to have already chosen us in Christ before the foundation of the world to give us a new nature and to do so, which we'll get to later in another doctrine, to make us alive so that we can believe. Uh, what about the objection that, that, that God wouldn't choose a specific few because he desires that all would be saved? Well, th- this runs into several problems that I'm sure we'll get into eventually. But, but one, of the, one of the major problems is simply that uh, God clearly keeps people from believing in being saved. He does it all throughout the Old Testament. He does it all throughout the New Testament. In fact, part of his ministry was to speak in parables, not just to the powerful, but to the masses that would keep them from believing, keep them from turning, keep them from repenting, keep them from being healed. Now, you might want to say, well, what's the purpose of that if people uh, you know, are, are, are predestined to, to damnation anyways? But again, we're not denying that people choose. The question is, what are they able to choose? And here, God is clearly keeping people from being able. Um, We started off this entire section by looking at Louis Burkhoff's quote. So let me close with another one. He says, And such it is a source of rich comfort for all believers. Their final salvation does not depend on their uncertain obedience, but has its guarantee and the unchangeable purpose of God. And this is what we're going to see over and over as we go through these discussions. It is Calvinism that supports the hope and assurance of the believer. Our salvation rests not on our sincerity of belief, not on our willingness to repent and believe day in and day out. We are not the guarantor of our redemption. We are saved from start to finish, from election to glorification, from being chosen by God's grace before the foundations of the world, specifically us to being atoned for by God's grace in his death of Christ in our place on the cross, to being raised to new life by the grace of the power of God at the resurrection, and to being welcomed to our eternal home by the grace of God at the consummation of all things. Our salvation is assured because it is all of God from start to finish. But if you're an Arminian, you could stop that plan. You could turn away. You could not believe well enough. You are long enough or sincere enough. God could have atoned for your sin on the cross and still demand double payment for you and your sin. If he did that for those in hell, what confidence do you have that he'll do that for you? Unconditional election lays the foundation that it's not by us. It is by God's choice of us specifically before the foundations of the world. Thank you, Tyler. Braxton and Layden, you now have the floor for 15 minutes of cross-examination. All right. For, first of all, uh, let me just ask first about the parables. Um, when you were, were talking about he keeps us from believing, and we know Mark uh, 4, Matthew 13 speaks of him speaking in parables, lest they see, hear, turn, and understand. Uh, we also see um, Romans 11 saying that he sends them a spirit of stupor. 
Uh, Mark 9, 9, we see Jesus telling his disciples, don't tell anybody who I am yet. Keep it a secret. It's not the right time. We see this seven different times throughout the Gospels. In fact, why does God need to do that if they are born corpses? That sounds a lot like someone putting earmuffs on Lazarus or putting a blindfold over a person without eyes. What is the purpose of parables, of sending the spirit of stupor, of saying keep things quiet, if they are born in such a condition that they could not spiritually and morally understand and believe and turn as the scripture says they might do if he didn't use parables? Let me give you the simple answer. I think it's an act of judgment um, on that, a compound judgment. And so I think the, one of the purposes of the parables in um, the, those contexts is to bring judgment upon unbelieving Israel. And I do believe that humans are born in a state of depravity, a state of blindness, um, a state of not being able to understand the gospel truth. It doesn't mean they can't understand the facts. It doesn't mean they can't understand um, the need. It just means they can't positively want to or can uh, make the decision to trust Christ. And so I believe that the parables and the hardening or whatever you want to call it is an act of judgment. Um, a, judgment and I, even, a judgment even worse than being born dead and without hope sure. of salvation and spend eternity in hell. There's a judgment worse than that. Sure. I don't, I don't see any, I don't see any What's problem with that. I don't see there any, being any problem with God having a double judgment on that. Uh, so you putting, see hardening putting Pharaoh. a blindfold over somebody dead. That's a worse judgment for him. Yeah. I don't, I don't, I personally don't have a problem with God doing that if that's what he wants to do. Okay. Um, so if Jesus had not used parables, would they, could they have, in your estimation, could they have turned be, and be healed, as the scripture says they might have if he not used parables? The Jews? Um, no. I think the parable, again, I think that you need to look at the purpose of the parables is, is an act of, of judgment on Israel in the sense that they did not accept him as Messiah. And I think that the doctrine of total inability teaches that they cannot and they would not and they did not um, want to to do that. It just, it just seems a little redundant, I think, to to say that that God is blinding them to keep them from belief if they're born in a nature that's unable to do that. But we'll move on. Um, uh, Tyler mentioned that um, the that the condition's unknown to us. Does that mean there could be a condition that we just don't know what it is? No, I think unconditional. It, it means that that God God's purposes for why He chooses some and not chooses others are unknown to us. It doesn't necessarily mean it has to be um, any. It doesn't have to be conditioned on on us. It doesn't have to be conditioned on on merit, our belief. Uh, but we don't know why God orchestrates history the way He orchestrates history for His purposes. Um, it, it's it's just not known to us. But it's unconditional in the sense that it's not based on on our no. merits. It's not based on our works. It's not based on what we do. So it's not it's not based upon the morality of the individual. So like in Mark. 9-11 when it says he chose one of the twins over the other before they had done anything good or bad. What is, if, if Paul is a theistic determinist or compatibilist, and if Paul believes that nobody does anything that's good or moral or right unless God gives them the grace to do that, what's the point in pointing out that God's chosen one over the other if God's ultimately the one to, that determines the good or the bad that they do in their lifetime? It's almost as if has God determined to save one over the other without regard to what he's determined them to do morally? Well, I think, I think here you're, you're starting to already kind of make that, that caricature of Calvinism um, where, we don't, where we don't make choices throughout our life that we're just little 
predetermined robots, which I, I don't think um, any any. I mean, we're not neither Sean or I are hyper Calvinists here. But the point that Paul is is clearly making no, is I, that I, that I'm it's not that it's not based that that God chose them before they had done anything um, that that anyone could say. Oh well, God chose God chose Isaac because you know he chose God or because he you know he was faithful to the covenant or anything like that. It was God chose him before he did anything like that. Well, I mean, Calvinists are really insistent on nobody does anything good unless God graces them or does something effectual in their life first. And so it just seems to me to point out that God has chosen one twin over the other before they have done anything good or bad. If God's the one who determines if they do anything good or bad, then it, it doesn't make a lot of sense. What, what's the purpose of even speaking of that unless they have the freedom to choose between good and bad? What's the purpose in choosing them before they make a choice of doing good and bad if they can't make a choice to do good or bad? Yeah, I think, I think, here, I think here you're just conflating a couple concepts. Uh, and, and part of it could be that Calvinists sometimes conflate a couple concepts. I don't think that it means that, that there's no such thing as, as general equity. There's no such thing as just kind of a general ethic. It doesn't mean the unbeliever can't help a little old lady across the street or do something good. It's that nothing is... Is, is done that's good, that's pleasing to God, or meritorious to salvation. I think God. I think Paul's point there is to say that the purpose, his purpose of divine election on Jacob over Esau, was made in eternity past, before they were born, and it was not conditioned on anything that either boy would do to somehow earn or merit that election. It was based upon God's sovereign decree to do that, so his purpose of election might stand. And I think that Paul adds that caveat so that there would be an argument that, well, you know, God must have foreseen the faith in Jacob and chose him over Esau, and that would have been the basis of election. I think Paul puts that caveat in there to to blow out foreseen faith, but also to show that, uh, that the choice took place before they were born. It was a sovereign choice, and it was not based upon any foreseen merit, good or bad, that the boys would have done to um, determine how God would have chosen them. Yeah, I, I just had a question about this issue of this, these being individuals and not uh, representing nations here. I, I won't go down the, the rat hole of talking about, although I think it's true, about um, uh, two nations are warring in your womb. And then in Malachi chapter 1, verse 2, I have loved you, says the Lord, but you you say, how have you loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord. And it goes on talking about tearing down his mountains, laying mountain waste and all that. Um, but if they're individuals, e even putting all that aside, um, it says in Romans nine twelve that the older shall serve the younger. If these are individuals, do you find anywhere where uh, Esau is serving Jacob in their individual lives? I I've never, I've never found that. I found where Jacob bows seven times to Esau toward the end of end of their uh, end of their ministry, their uh, end of the story. But, um, but I I've never seen where Esau is found serving Jacob. Actually, and, and Sean, you might want to clarify after this, but I, I think that this is uh, directly contradict your position on, on corporate election because in order for, I, I think you're right. I think the, the nations are clearly in view of what's going to be coming, but in order to get the nations, God first chooses the individuals, right? So, so you, you have, you have um, uh, Jacob and Esau clearly being chosen as the individuals, not based on what they've done in this life, not based on merit, not based on decision, but be based on God's predestination for his plans and purposes, 
which are to bring about the nations and, and to bring about the lineage, which will ultimately bring about Christ. Uh, and, and really what happens at that point is, is that's a great analogy for the church. God, God elects, God chooses individuals to bring about the, the, the holy nation, to bring about the, the corporate body of the church. The corporate body is made of the individual. So I actually think this is a great example that kind of undermines um, your view that the corporate comes first and then only we choose to then be part of that corporate. Um, Sean, I don't know if you have any, any uh, insight on that I as well. It, I think it was, just real quick, I think it does misrepresent our perspective to say that the individuals aren't involved because we do believe Jacob was chosen to be Israel. He, his name is changed to Israel. Esau was not chosen for that purpose. Um, and this is what I was talking about in the parable of Matthew 22, the conflating happening here. Notice they keep ab applying choice number one, which was the choice of the nation and the choice of the servants from that nation, which we agree was not based upon the morality. He doesn't choose Paul because he's more moral than some other Pharisee. He doesn't choose Jonah because he's more moral than some other messenger he could have chosen. He doesn't choose the nation of Israel because it's a great nation. We do believe that he chose them unconditional of the morality or the greatness or the impressiveness of the nation or the servants. But notice how that's a conflating of, that's all about the calling. Those are all elective purposes of God to bring the call to the world, not the election, the few who are chosen based upon those who come in faith. And it, it, it relates to the Jonah story. And, and this is where I, I want to ask, how, how is proof that God has chosen his messenger and uses means like big fish and blinding lights to convince his messenger to go, like he does with Thomas, shows him the nail-scarred hands. He, he does what he has to do to make sure his message is delivered as he's elected Israel for that purpose. How does that prove that God has irresistibly caused certain people to believe their message? Well, let me answer that because I think that I want to address your issue because I, I know where you're coming from, Leighton, on, on the issue of Romans 9 and the issue of the noble cause of the election there, of carrying the message to the world. Um, I think Romans chapter 9, your view would be that God is choosing um, Israel and he's choosing Jacob over Esau to deliver the message uh, to to the world. But I think that he's talking about individual election because he's talking about individuals. He's talking originally about um, Isaac and Ishmael, Jacob, Esau. Then he talks about an individual um, Pharaoh, and then he talks about lumps of clay. And so all throughout Romans chapter 9, he's talking about individual election, and he's talking about salvation. The issue of why is Israel, why is not all Israel saved? And, and your answer would be, well, all Israel's not saved because they have, they've been judicially hardened for a period and God's going to get the message to them. Our answer would be the reason that not all Israel saved is because it was never God's intention in the first place to save all Israel because he has chosen some out of Israel to be saved, others he's not. And then he gives these three examples. He gives um, Jacob and Esau as an example. He gives Pharaoh as an example. And then he gives the, the clay as an example to show that the individual salvation of of people is determined on, on God's sovereign will. And so that's how I think we would answer that. I don't know if Tyler if wants were, to. If you were to go back generations, you go from Jacob Esau, you go back up one generation, that's Isaac Ishmael. And so the assumption of the Calvinists is Ishmael's going to hell because he was reprobated. Um, Esau's going to hell because he was reprobated. Um, let's back up one generation. Abraham was chosen over Lot, his nephew, who was raised in the same family because his dad died. And Lot wasn't chosen. Lot has a family, the Moabites and others, who rise up against Israel later, much like Esau has a lineage that does the same. But yet we know Lot was righteous. 
Now, he was not chosen to be the lineage through which the Christ would come and the word would be, you know, come, but yet he was saved. How do you explain the fact that there's a difference between the choice of one brother or one family member over another to carry the lineage, but yet other family members and even people outside the nation altogether who bless them, I will bless those who bless you as a part of the promise. How is it that they can be blessed, i.e. saved, even though they are not chosen, and yet you're conflating the concept of being chosen for that noble purpose of bringing the word with being chosen individually for effectual salvation? Yeah, I I think that that's just kind of misrepresenting what what Sean said. I I don't think it's a hard and fast rule that just because uh, for the for the purpose of of bringing about the genealogy of Christ uh, that therefore the other was not saved. Um, it's it's not our place to say who was saved or not saved. We have, we probably have a pretty good idea that that Esau so, wasn't because because God or that Paul says specifically um, that that God hated him. But I don't think oh, okay. I don't think it's a clear principle at all uh, good. to I, say I, I, to say that just because I, Abraham was chosen, therefore Lot is unsaved. Yeah. I, I don't right. I don't think we would press the analogy because and and part of that's going to get back to and and I don't know if we want to dwell on this too much. We can maybe come back into the hour. Part of this is just going to come to uh, to to my critique of the hermeneutic of your use of the parable as well. I think you're trying to make that the parable of the wedding banquet stand way too much uh, on, on, on too many feet. I mean, parables typically have one point. Uh, I, I just don't think that that parable has anything to do um, okay. with, with election. Well, me, the entire, the entire point of a parable is to have, on. is to have one, is to have one point. And that one point is that, well, the gospel goes to the nations. So. Okay. Okay, let, let me let me clarify because you did acknowledge that Esau could could possibly be saved. You don't think he might be based upon some other, but Ishmael. We do have indications that he was prayed for and that he was blessed and circumcised and other things that he could have been saved. And so, if we acknowledge that, then we can acknowledge that Paul very likely was talking about the individual choice of people through which the Israel would Israel would bring the promise to the world, and that he would be answering the very question of Romans chapter nine, which is, has God's promise failed? Is God going to fulfill His promise? And so my, 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 my question is, to, is if you're acknowledging that Esau and Ishmael and the other ones that were not chosen could still be saved, then how can you insist well, that this has to do with election to in, individual salvation? Well, no, because I, I mean, I, I, sorry if I didn't say it strong enough. I, I think Esau wasn't because I think Romans is clear that, that God chose not to have mercy and that he hated him and that he had, uh, he had judgment. He wasn't one of the ones that God chose to have mercy. What I'm saying is I don't think, I don't think Sean or, or, or anyone would really press that principle backwards and say that just because Abraham was chosen, therefore Lot is unsaved. But, but it's, all I'm doing is taking the principle that you have installed, which is that God has chosen one brother over another and therefore, the one he's passed over is the reprobate in your system. But, it's the one not able to be saved. But neither, neither Sean or us said that's a principle. We said that that's the interpretation of that one passage. Neither of us are saying that's a principle that needs to be carried out in other places. All right. Thank you, everyone. That concludes the first portion of our debate. The second hour is going to be a little more free-flowing. And to the listener, I would just like to add, if they seem to be jumping on top of each other or cutting each other off, they're not being rude at all. That's just one of the difficulties inherent in doing a debate like this online. So um, please give them a little grace if they seem like they're cutting each other off. Everyone leaves here uh, on good terms, and it worked out well the first time.